Welcome to All of the Above. My name is Trevor. I'm one of the pastors at the church at Greer Station, soon to be Ridgewood Church. It might be Ridgewood, Ridgewood Church by the time that you uh, get around to listening to this episode. Uh, I'm joined by Aaron Markham here uh, this morning. Say hello, Aaron. Yeah, hello. Glad All to the, be here. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. All of the Above is a podcast devoted to books, current events, issues relevant to the life of our church. And uh, this morning we're talking about a book that has been recommended by one of our own, Katie Cooper. Um it's a book that Aaron and I both read, that Aaron and I both thoroughly enjoyed. Spoiler alert, we're going to be giving some, uh, a little bit more of a, an in-depth kind of overview about what the book is arguing for and some of our favorite parts of the book. Um, but before we jump into that, I have a question for you, Aaron. We were talking a moment ago about uh, Stranger Things. Um, Aaron said that Stranger Things is not his jam, uh, which I understand. Um, but Christmas rom-coms are your jam, is that correct? Is that what you said? That's right, ago? yeah. What's your uh, favorite one you've watched this year? Oh, that is a good question. Um, shoot, I may... <laughs> all the names of the movies are pretty much exactly the same. You know, it's like a, <laughs> a, prince a country and- Christmas, <laughs> a prince and Christmas. Yeah. You know, a Christmas in an inn. Um, uh, do, 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 do. That is a good question. Casey and I did watch a, a couple of Christmas rom-coms a few weeks ago. Um, and honestly, I'm not remembering their names. They're just enjoyable in the moment. Um, they don't necessarily last with you forever. Um, there's a great one on Netflix that was, I don't even know what it's called, but it's like a Christmas and they, they celebrate in like Zambia or something. And it's like a safari Christmas. And oh, that is probably okay. Casey and mine, uh, favorite yeah. of all time. So I'll That's have great. to, I'll have to find the name and, and get it to you. We're talking about digital minimalism. I wanted to ask you. Oh, okay. Did you have a MySpace account? Oh, heck yeah. What What was like your song on oh, your gosh. MySpace account? I can only imagine what a Trevor MySpace song would yeah. have been. Man, honestly, I don't remember. Um, it was probably probably some pop punk band from the late '90s, early 2000s, like a Blink 182 or uh, maybe a MXPX, something like that. Mm. Is that, do you know either of those bands, Aaron? No, I know neither one of those. Okay. You're better so. off for it, probably. What? Actually, you're not, because pop punk from the early 2000s is fantastic. What was yours? Um, I have no idea. Probably some rap song trying to be cool in pretty hood. You're pretty hood. seventh and eighth grade, yeah. but wasn't actually the least bit cool, so... I, I have another uh, Christmas movie just to mention. Okay. I have a list of what I watched in 2020 and 2021. It's not all of them, but it's on my phone here. Uh, my number two movie from 2020 was Operation Christmas Drop. It's a great one where they're in like middle of nowhere, like off Hawaii, and they do like a Christmas. The, the military does these like drops of Christmas gifts in... <laughs> Like very remote areas, and it's just a it's just a funny, cool little romantic movie. So, Operation Christmas Drop. What? Explain this list. That's the interesting thing about this. I, we just I just keep up with the list of movies that we've generally watched if they if they are high up on the list. So, we generally only watch movies that are on IMDb like five point eight, five point nine or above. We've pretty much watched all of them. So, what are you gonna do? Digital minimalism. Probably should do less of it. So you, why do you record them? Like why do you? I don't know. It's you write just fun in? to keep a list. Casey and I then go back and laugh about them and talk about them. So, okay. What app are you using? To oh, it's just list? notes. It's just notes. Okay. 
Okay. Well, it's, I see it's segmented into like smaller portions. You have. <laughs> explain this. Li- <laughs> you've got it's movies. You got it's movies to watch. Okay. It's uh, I haven't done as well in 2022 movies that we have watched. I only have one written down, and then just yeah, different movies we watched in 2021 and 2020, and then we try to rank them. So what were what were our favorite ones and that kind of thing? Well, there's multiple headers. What other headers are there? <laughs> like favorites? I see. I'm Some of them are listed. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them are listed like what movies are on Amazon Prime, uh, movies to watch, uh, watched in 2021, watched in 2020, Netflix, Xfinity. You know, we have everybody, all our parents log in. So where where are movies located? Um, that's it. I would expect nothing less from here. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Yeah, so um, we are talking about digital minimalism. It's written by a guy named Cal Newport. Um, and, I, I mean, if you're, you're hearing the title, you can probably already piece together what the impetus behind the book is. Um, but why was this book written? Why does he say that he chose to write this book? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I was reading an article. I don't know how I got on in this Gospel Coalition article a week or two ago. Um, just about social media and the sort. And I thought it was a helpful kind of premise for why this book ended up being written. So the in the Gospel Coalition arg- article, it argues that, you know, Philip Morris, the largest producer of cigarettes, is worth about $165 billion. Uh, the brewing company, Anheuser-Busch, is worth about $110 billion. Retail giant Target is worth about $75 billion. Home Depot, Lowe's, you know they're all going to be around these you know fifty million fifty billion hundred billion dollar um, kind of valuation, but then Facebook platforms, Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus are worth five hundred thirty eight billion dollars, yes. so four to five times as much as these mass producers of uh, cigarettes or beer or retail giants or you know, home goods, all of these kind of things that obviously America consumes and really, you know, the world consumes at a giant amount. But then the question is, how much money have you given to Facebook? And the answer is going to be, I would assume for everybody, you know, for the most part, I don't even know what you can buy on Facebook. I know you used to be able to play little games and you could spend a dollar here, or $2 there. But most people listening to us have spent less than $100 on Facebook, $50. I don't know if I've ever spent... A dime. Um, and so it's, how does Facebook get that amount? H- how do they get that valuation that they are worth four to five times as much as just giant producers of actual goods that you can either, you know, enjoy or use for something or, you know, whatever. For someone, yeah. Yeah. And it's, so it's a super interesting kind of idea of, of how uh, the digital age has essentially... Um, contracted the 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 um, person they're selling is is me is you uh they're selling our eyes they're selling minutes mm. and so uh Cal you Newport, are the product i am the product yeah uh which is a total change in in focus and he even he talks about that in in the book with the attention economy and we'll we'll talk more about that but it's just such a change that facebook all of these these social media companies are worth so much more than other companies if you go look at the s&p 500 the, the top companies are going to be Google, Apple, uh, the Facebook, and whatever it's called now, Meta. Um, they're going to be at the top. And so it's a super interesting thing that they're just selling eyeball minutes. 
um, is what they're is what they're doing. And so he's writing the book to kind of address that, talk about it, bring it to light, so that you know what you're actually being brought into, um, so that you can be aware. Yeah, I like that he said that this was something that ultimately snuck up on us. Like this was not the plan. I mean, if you've seen the Social Network, you know the now like the mythical story of the origins of Facebook. It was a couple of college guys in a dorm room putting together a way to rank attractiveness of girls, their classmates. And then this thing evolved, and the iPhone as well, the, each of these things evolved, you know, so much quicker and so much f- further than any of their developers and inventors even anticipated. Mm-hmm. And so it happened really quick and it happened sneakily. Yep. And um, he says, ultimately, uh, the, the author of this book does digital minimalism that it's, it's kind of resulted that, you know, this slow creep and this kind of it feels like it's taken over our lives and it feels like we're losing our autonomy Yes, that we're somehow like we've, we've kind of lost control to these devices and we're now enslaved to them for hours a day for all sorts of different reasons for work, for personal life. We are just completely chained to these things. That's right. And it's interesting that he argues, he, he talks about what kind of attracts people. And so I was kind of thinking like what attracts people, what draws people in remember when we were living in Kenya, if there was a crash of any kind, a motorbike, a bus, a car, there would just be a mass group of people that would be drawn around the crash or around the like negative event. There were just a massive group of people would form. And you think about um, people are attracted to kind of negative events, kind of unfamiliar events like that. But then people are also attracted, he, Newport argues, by these kind of darker darker things that take place people are kind of drawn to it and so he talks about darker emotions rather than positive ones people are kind of attracted to gossip and attracted to um yeah just the the darker emotions that are that are put forward um and so social media essentially has the ability to alter your mood unlike anything else um he 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 argues that it's not like alcohol and drugs in its addictive nature but it's not terribly dissimilar um, that it's kind of giving your brain a, a shot and, you know, you are kind of having a, you get a little bit of a high from the next scroll from, let me just do one more scroll up or down or whatever. Um, and so there are a lot of technological benefits that we've witnessed over the last 10, 15, 20 years, but it's, it's not all good. It's not, there, the harm is mixed in with it or kind of enslavement or entrapment. Yeah, when he distinguishes between drug and alcohol addiction and iPhone addiction or tech addiction or whatever, he says it's not. Studies have shown that that does that that it doesn't have the um, it doesn't grab you quite as intensely as those addictions do. But the problem is, is we can slide so easily into feeding the addiction. Mm-hmm. So it's a, I mean, it's a forty times a day we're looking at the the rectangle, the glowing rectangle. And it's, we just very easily slide into that. And that's, that's the danger of the addictive power of these little machines. And, and they've, he also talks about how they were designed to be addictive. I mean, Sean Parker, one of the founders of Facebook kind of famously says that these things were designed and apps are continually refined ultimately to exploit weaknesses in the human psyche Mm. to, I mean, they're built to addict um, because we are the product because our eyeballs are the things that they are selling more or less the thing is built to capture our attention and not let it go yeah. just have a chokehold on our attention mm, that's terrifying it is terrifying um so in light of this and 
we could we could go on and probably do a, an entire podcast on you know the downsides and sort of the dark underbelly of the social media and, and all that. In light of that, what does Newport argue for? Yeah, he uh, he talks about just needing a philosophy of technology use. Essentially, he just wants to the the I think the main draw of the book. He's going to give examples of things to do, and we'll get to that here in a minute. But the main idea is technology is not just um, neutral and just kind of there and just kind of existing. We need to to know how we're going to use it. And so he's going to argue to like bring it all the way down, like to to essentially cut off technology use that's that's extra for a season for you know like a thirty day period. That's and then, not required when you say extra. That's not required for your livelihood. Yeah, not required for livelihood. And um, you know, if you need to make a phone call to grandma or you know whatever, yeah. um, but it's just going to bring it way down and then build back up from the base because most of us have just kind of for the last 15, 20 years, just kind of been building and building and just adding to and adding to. And so we um, spend a lot of time online um, and he tries to encourage, like focus in, rather on a small number of actual valuable activities, things you actually care about. Um, and so that would be, you know, it would actually be extreme in our day and time to to limit technology use to then spend time on whatever you want to then actually spend time on. Um, and so the key, he argues that the key to thriving in a, in a high-tech world is to actually spend less time using technology. And to your point, the, the, the thing that just stood out the most to me um, is how we fell into this technological kind of revolution. And he talks about it, page four and five, the beginning of... Um, with Steve Jobs and the iPhone. And the other day I went back and watched the video of, I think it's 2007 when Steve Jobs comes out and he's promoing the iPhone. And he, he's talking about that. It's going to be, there's, they're going to offer three revolutionary products, a widescreen iPod with touch controls. And then he gets a huge round of applause about this iPod. That's going to be widescreen. And then they're they're going to offer a revolutionary mobile phone and then just huge applause. And then he says, we're going to offer breakthrough internet communication device. And there was kind of like a very mild kind of clapping, you know, not that big of excitement. And then he's like, we're going to put all of this in one device. But the whole whole idea with the smartphone was that it was the thing that people really cared about was the widescreen iPod and the ability to make phone calls and scroll and, and be able to see different things in one thing, less so the internet. Mm. And he was essentially, we're going to, we're going to make the best iPod that, that we can do. You know, this iPhone's going to have improved phone call making abilities. You're even going to be able to do a conference call. And he takes three or four minutes and shows an example of a, of a conference call with people in his audience. And there's going to be a visual voicemail system. And all of these things were what he was emphasizing. Even you can take, take some photos but then, and he even argues, he says, the quote, the killer app is making calls. Like, that's what, 2007, the iPhone is like, the best thing about this is how you're going to be able to make phone calls so easily. You don't need a, there's no, there's no buttons. You can scroll and find contacts, and it's super easy. And it's like, how many of us actually care about those things on our smartphones now, 15 years later? It's like, you've got... 99% of your use is other things um, than, than phone calls. And it's not until 33 minutes into his video that he's like, oh, yeah, we're going to be able to offer the internet. 
and you're going to be able to like look things up and see different things. Mm. And so it's kind of, we've just kind of fell into it. And so Newport has a quote, we added new technologies to the periphery of our experience for minor reasons, then woke one morning to discover that they had colonized the core of our daily life. Mm. We didn't sign up for the digital world in which we're currently entrenched. We seem to have stumbled backward into it. Mm. So I just thought it was super interesting kind of going back 15 years to Steve Jobs and the, and the iPhone. Mm. It's kind of freaky, honestly, and unsettling. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, If what Newport argues for is a kind of digital minimalism where we strip everything back and then slowly reintroduce everything, how do we, how does he break that down for us? How are we to go about pursuing that? Yeah, that's a good, that's a great question. So I think he, he encourages just to have a uh, philosophy of, of technology, um, you know, which digital tools do we allow into our life for what reasons and under what constraints and so he really wants to be clear on what are we going to allow into our life for what reasons and under what constraints um i wanted to read quickly his definition of uh digital minimalism a philosophy of technology use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected and optimized activities that strongly support things you value and then happily miss out on everything else and so it's choosing to it's not saying don't use technology, but figure out the two, three things that you care about, figure out setting up your technology around that, and then don't get trapped essentially going down, you know, all the algorithms on uh, Amazon that wants you to click on the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing and then 45 minutes in, you're shopping and you're buying things you didn't even know you even know existed. Yeah. Um, right. But you're interested. Five in. minutes ago, yeah. Yeah. Um. And so he he, he well, ha- really yeah, quick. So please. what are some examples of I mean, you know, talking about that kind of the downward spiral and kind of the infinite loop of being trapped by the internet? I mean, what what examples do we have? Does he offer of technology kind of trapping us and getting getting us by the by the throat? Yeah, I I looked at my phone the other day, and I would even encourage you guys is just look at the number of pickups and taps that you have on your phone. I know on the iPhone you can go to settings, screen time, and then see all activity. And you can see how you use your phone and okay. the number of times you pick it up. So I didn't know. So he mentioned in the book the the there was an app. What's yes, Moment, Moment. I think yeah. he talks about. And but so it, Moment is going to be more clear and have a lot more analysis. But even your iPhone today will offer you some basic analysis. And so he talks about you know people compulsively checking eighty five times per day, which I just think about eighty five times per day checking your phone. It's like does that sound like a lot? Or does that sound like a little bit? And I, sometimes it's kind of hard to know. But it's you if you're awake for 16 hours, that's checking five times per hour. You know, Trevor just picked up his phone to click on something or look it up. Because I'm going to look at that. Figure s- out what he's doing. All right, you said settings. Where is this at? Settings, screen time should be near the top. And then see all activity. But it's the average is checking your phone every 10 minutes. And it's like there's no other way to think about that other than that it is enslaving, mm-hmm. other than that it is trapping you in. Um, and so the single biggest factory shaping us today, he argues, is our screens. He, he quotes Bill, Bill Maher saying that tobacco farmers and T-shirts, or essentially the technology people today, tobacco farmers and T-shirts selling an addictive property product to children 
checking your likes is the new smoking. Mm. Um, and so it just it traps us in. What were you going to say? I have picked today, July 12th. I have picked my phone up 20 times. 20 times. Day. And it's right, nine, we're, we're, 9, 12 a.m. Yeah. It's disturbing. It's wild. Uh, but it, and I think he, he, again, is not, you don't have to feel guilty. You know, we were doing a podcast. We're trying to organize things. You've, we were texting about what time we were going to get here this morning. Be sh- you know, whatever. There's lots of things that happen. But it's better to be aware mm. than to not be aware. Yeah. And he talks about the average modern user spends two hours per day on social media. Two hours. So one, one twelfth of your life. You, you are willing to spend on social media, you know, not producing anything. It's kind of like watching Christmas rom-coms. It's like, I can't even remember what the movie is or what it's about. And so it's like, well, okay, watching one of those every now and again in a healthy, you know, conditioned way. But it's like, if I'm going to do two hours every day of something that's not something I don't actually necessarily care about or want to keep up with or produce anything, um, we should just kind of be aware of that mm. and, and try to rethink it. Yeah, that's good. Uh, it, so, so what he says is we need to have then first kind of in, re, in response to this, we're, we're made aware and we, we probably don't need much convincing, you know, as to how trapped we feel by our devices. So we think about that. He, he says the first kind of move is to have a philosophy of technology that's rooted in the things that we value most so that we can kind of get out in front of our tech use so that we're not reactive to it so that we can have a, a framework for deploying it helpfully in our lives. So we need to have a philosophy that's rooted in our deepest commitments. And as believers, that would have commitments in our, um, or it, it would have its roots in our commitments to the church, to discipleship and evangelism, to um, if we're married, to our spouse, if we have children, to our children, those kind of things. So we, we want to develop some kind of philosophy for technology use that takes into account the things that we are most concerned about. That's right. Okay, then, then what? Yeah, so he he gives us kind of uh, a few principles from there. That before I kind of argue discuss those three principles, his his main question is just what is your good reason for really doing almost anything you do? It's even helpful to ask that, not just technology, um, whatever you're doing throughout your day. What what is your good reason for doing it? And he argues that you know a lot of times people's answer for social media is keeping up with a friend who's super far away or a nephew or a grandchild. And it's and he doesn't argue, he doesn't say those are invalid, but he says that that's going to be 5%, 10%, 15% of your actual use because it's going to trap you. There's people making billions, if not trillions of dollars. D- designing apps to trap you. To trap you. Yeah. Um, baiting you in with, yeah, keep up with, you know, baby Joe's, you know, cute birthday pictures, and then zoom, 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 you're scrolling, you're seeing ads, you're doing all the things. And so he, you know, he's going to talk about, you know, if you want to use Facebook, that's great, but just only be friends with the people that you are actually trying to keep up with. If that's the two people who live overseas now, and you're five, you know, kids and grandkids, it's like, great, like, be friends with seven people on Facebook. Um, you will be less trapped. Um, you will not scroll as much and those kinds of things. But he gives he gives three principles that I thought were super helpful. The first one is clutter is costly. And so he talks about Thoreau's new economics, that anything you have, the question is how much time was required to have that thing. And so he wants to shift the measure of units from money, 
uh, to time. So that's kind of Thoreau's new economics and thinking about us working in general. But then he, he argues specifically for media, the cost of a thing is the amount of what I will call life, which is required to be exchanged for it, either immediately or in the long run. And then on page uh, 41, he just says, uh, Thoreau's new economics, however, demands that you balance your pr- this profit against the cost measured in terms of your life. How much of your time and attention, he would ask, must be sacrificed to earn the small profit of occasional connections and new ideas that is earned by cultivating a significant presence on Twitter. So essentially the, the ability to cultivate a significant, you know, presence is just going to cost tons of time for marginal benefit. So the most important resource that we really have is our minutes. Um, and many things are going to ask for our time. And so his kind of takeaway and really our takeaway as believers is, is let's give our time to the things that are most important. So he says, clutter is costly. Well, it, what it, do you think there? Yeah. I would also add, I mean, mental and if we could say it this way, spiritual clutter is, mm. is costly. Like that's not... He talks about the you know the attention economy and joining the attention resistance later, but I think that that principle is also true for for our inner self mm. and for our mental self. You know, we it's not just a matter of wasting time; it's also a matter of just wasting attention. We have limited attention. We have you know a finite amount of stuff that we can pay attention to and devote our hearts to, and so clutter is costly time wise, but it's it's costly in terms of our internal states as well. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I think that's even helpful in in terms of friendships or you know relationships. You only have the ability to be relational with so many people, and clearly Christ has called us to be relational with the church, and that may mean sacrifices in other areas of of past friends or you know different people. One thing I felt like I learned really well being overseas, we were most of our small group were military families, and it was interesting. You know, all of these these families being believers them kind of talking about the ability to kind of they're moving every two to three years to really invest well but then they're kind of called to move on and and form new friendships and new relationships but just the importance of we only have so much capacity but we need to invest in the people that are around us and then evangelistically as well um you know co-workers and and whoever else so that was the first principle second principle uh optimization is important he, he does say technology is beneficial, like all of us have benefited from technology in, in some major ways, but he says the benefits are a bell curve. It's not just exponential growth. It's not more technology is better, and I feel like you've been really helpful for me in that is, is not optim, optimizing everything and making everything the best doesn't actually mean that's better for your heart, your mind, your soul, your walk with the Lord. There's the law of diminishing returns, which essentially is that the first hour you work has a greater return than the second hour. Um, you know, thinking about like specifically working out, like the first hour you work out, Trevor loves working out. That first hour is going to have more benefit than the, than the second hour. And now he's, he's flexing for Jonathan and me. <laughs> it's it, you, you only improve, you know, the more you do one thing, you only start to improve, you know, kind of infant infinitesimally less and less and less. It's smaller and smaller rewards. And so it's figure out the things that are benefiting you, the ways the iPhone benefits you, but don't, it doesn't have to be that it's perfect in every single way. You're fully optimized. You have every app that every other person has. Uh, It's just figuring out what are you going to adopt and then what are you just going to kind of leave and it's just okay. Yeah, that that was really 
that was helpful. I mean, we, we were talking about how one of the things we appreciate about the book is how he's not he's not fussing at the reader. He's not old man shouts at cloud mm-hmm. kind of kind of kind of attitude. Um, it's a um, winsome, persuasive, and I think just realistic assessment of the power of technology, the benefits of technology, but also the need for us to have some frameworks in place to discipline ourselves. Mm. Um, so, uh, did, did you, you, so you mentioned the clutter is costly. Yep. It's the important optimization to is important. And then the third one is just intentionality is satisfying, which is probably somewhat, um, kind of self evidently clear. Yeah. Just being intentional about how you choose things. Um, doing the things you care about the most yep. when you follow through with them, working out, reading a book, developing a friendship, literally anything. It's, it's oftentimes harder to do those things. It's easier to watch a couple hours of Netflix, scroll on your phone, do whatever. Um, but to be consistent with working out or you want to eat better, or you want to read more of the Bible or you want to do this or that, whatever the thing is, intentionality is satisfying, which I think we all taste. Yeah, well, and the experience of autonomy, kind of back to, to feeling like we've lost our autonomy to our mm-hmm. devices, the experience of feeling like we have control over our lives, feeling like we have mastery and competency and just feeling like we are not feeling like we've kind of got a handle on things versus being reactive and on our heels Mm -hmm. and kind of constantly reactive and responsive to things. Yeah. I think that's kind of what he's getting at is the, it's satisfying to reclaim our sense of autonomy from our devices and be in control rather than technology kind of controlling you. Yeah, that's right. So he then offers three, steps in digital minimalism. The first step is the digital declutter. What does he mean when he encourages us to undertake a digital declutter? Yeah. So here he's, he's kind of talking about pulling, pulling us back. He encourages doing kind of 30 days of only the things that are kind of vital for your, for your livelihood. And so his step, step one is define your technology rules. So he's fine with you using technology, you know, in, in the digital declutter, but just kind of uh, choose those things that are that that matter the most that you kind of need to need to do. So define your technology rules. Step number two: take a thirty day break. Um, and he's just wanting you to think about the time that can be reclaimed from mindless digital activity for the sake of whatever you again want to do. You want to play with your kids more. You want to read a good theology book. You want to meditate on a passage of scripture whatever it is just taking a 30-day break and he he recognizes he acknowledges that that can kind of be extreme in that first week or two just like when you change your diet you start to work out you're going to kind of have withdrawals but if you can kind of break through there's going to be oh yeah this this is sweet and then he talks about so many people don't actually want to go back um Mm -hmm. at the at the end and then step number three reintroduce uh technology and he offers um, three kind of key questions when you're reintroducing. Does this technology directly support something that I deeply value? Uh, is this technology the best way to support this value? And how am I going to use this technology going forward to maximize its value and minimize its harms? And I think that's important for us as believers in anything. Is like, what do we value? And then choose to do the things that are in accordance with that. Whether it's digitally or anything else yeah. reading the bible prayer evangelism discipleship being invested in the body those kinds of things yeah it was it was interesting we, we haven't mentioned this yet that 
a lot of this um, approach was inspired by the Amish community. Mm-hmm. And so we typically think about the Amish being uh, completely opposed to any kind of technology. But in the early parts of the book, he actually says that the Amish are not opposed to any kind of technology. They're just very thoughtful about what technologies they introduce and whether or not those technologies um, violate the values of the Amish community. That's right. Uh, so he says they'll, so there's a new technology that's introduced, say a vehicle, cars, something that we very much take for granted. Um, but cars are introduced. And so uh, when that took place, Amish communities would have select individuals, representatives from the communities kind of slowly incorporate that into their life for a season and then kind of come back and evaluate whether or not that supported their value as a community or if it cut at the root of their values as a community. That's exactly right. And they've concluded that cars do indeed cut at the root. And he he quotes, um, I forget exactly who he's quoting, uh, some, uh, I don't know if it's like a researcher or an actual Amish person, when people leave the Amish, the first thing they do is buy a car because of the desire to kind of travel and move around. But then that kind of def- that kind of defeats the family, the community, um, some of those aspects of of the relational the relational part. And that is a while this book is super helpful. Some of the pushback for me, two things is one he does kind of he he goes on a little bit of a hiatus at the end of the Amish section to kind of say like oh but we're not you know um, the Amish have done a lot of bad almost or you know kind of kind of questions some of the things and kind of gets on a moral. Um, maybe high ground, I would almost say. And then also the book, I think, is like 250 pages, and it's classically, you know, it, this could have been a 100-page book or a 125-page book. So I would encourage you to read it if you have the space, but I don't exactly encourage like necessarily like speed reading because we all maybe we think of different things when we mean that, but you don't have to read every detail. The beginning's always going to tell some story, and then he's going to finally get to kind of the meat and the bones. Um, and I thought the first half of the book was even better than the second half. Um less wordy um, and kind of more to the point. Well, the second half of the book is filled with a lot of, um, for instance, for, kind of stories. Yeah, a lot, lot of stories, yeah. which can be helpful. Um, and that was the other thing I was thinking. I mean, he does have a lot of, you know, he, he does the digital declutter. Most of the stuff I've talked about so far has all been in the first 75 pages. And then part two is these kind of practices um, where he is offering kind of more wordiness. Yeah, let's let's pivot to that. Um so what does he what does he recommend we do? So he he's kind of given us the three steps: the first digital declutter that that detox, and then we have the thirty day kind of picking up the stuff that we used to do, the, the things that you used to do before Instagram was sucking in your eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel that very much. He, he says, you know, hiking, playing with your kids, um, reading fiction, reading scripture, you know, whatever that is, and then slowly reintroducing things that actually add value. Then in the second half of the book, he, he offers some suggestions for almost practices that can kind of replace the, the, the digitalism in our lives. So what is the first of those practices? Yeah, so he talks about spending time alone. And so just kind of getting, getting by yourself, being willing to kind of be in quiet. The, the first kind of point he goes to, which is kind of interesting connected with this, is he just talks about beware the cl- the quick glance mm. is when you are alone or when you kind of get bored uh, you you want to go to your phone um, and you just want to you want a quick glance a quick you know I want to be in the know I want to see what's going on I want to did somebody message me how important am I 
is beware the the quick glance. Um, and he so then he from there he kind of goes on to talk about you know music can be good, listening to music can be good, but it's it's also good to just spend time in in quiet and um, kind of away um, from everything. He then even goes on to argue about kind of anxiety and anxiety even stemming how much more anxiety people even feel today with social media and the sort. And, you know, I don't, I guess I have social media. I don't ever get on them. Um, my wife, I don't know the passwords to my social media accounts. My wife has the password. So the only time I ever get on is to look or do something very specific. Um, and I know Trevor yours is, you know, you don't have, I guess, personal, uh, as much, maybe you have an Instagram now. I've yeah. seen some, seen some pictures that a variety of times that my wife has shown me. Um, it's 100% goofing off. Yes. That's which is good, which can probably be good. Yeah. But how much just kind of questioning it is anxiety coming about because of attachment to social media and, mm. and that sort of thing. He talks about leaving your phone, you know, at home or in the car. And how many times have I heard people say, yeah, I lost my phone for, a few hours, I, I left it at home by accident when I went out, and man, it was really freeing. It actually felt good. It was nice. Um, but then it's like, oh, but then the next time I got I got to have it with me. Yeah. Um, and so just kind of being willing to to leave it at, at home and um, do away with it. He says on page uh, 115, to live permanently without these devices would be needlessly annoying, but to regularly spend a few hours away from them should give you no pause. Hmm. So he's saying, use technology. It is super beneficial. I can call my wife right now. We can discuss we're eating, what we're eating tonight or you know, figuring out plans or whatever. Um, it's super helpful. But it shouldn't cause you pause for pre, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years ago. I, you know, growing up, my mom had the, the car phone, the huge car phone in, the, in her um, Ford. It was some blue, long kind of like station. I guess it was just a station wagon. I would sit in the back facing the wrong way and she had a huge car phone. And it's like, I guess that was kind of the introduction, but you know, pre whatever, 20, 30, 40 years ago, people just couldn't get in contact. You know, if you went, if you were a parent and you went out on a date, you weren't getting in contact with, in case of an emergency with a babysitter. Um, and that could be a benefit today. Like you, you're ready to reply and be, be there. But there's also, can be a lot of benefit of just being away from your phone. So kind of getting away, being in isolation is, is quite okay. Yeah. I think about occasionally I'm going to use a workout metaphor. Occasionally my right shoulder likes to flare up from push exercises and you develop these impingements and it's basically something swells and you just don't have enough space in there. And you got this kind of rubbing on that, this rubbing on that and swelling and then it makes it worse. And what you have to do is exercises that basically open the shoulder up, like I do a lot of dead hangs where I just go to pull a bar and just hang. Hmm. And the idea is that it just creates space in my shoulders so that those inflamed parts can kind of cool their jets a little bit. And uh, I almost think about silence and solitude like a way for us to create space so that some of the mental inflammation can just go down. You know what I'm saying? Like uh, just get remove the noise, remove the chaos. I mean like the literal noise, not, not having headphones in, not listening to podcast and music 24-7, not constantly – looking at updates on social media, removing all of that noise so that I just have some space for my, my brain and my heart to breathe. Um, and it's interesting that he kind of identifies that as a crucial practice when, I mean, Christians have been doing that and, and practicing that and the Lord Jesus modeled that, Mm -hmm. 
you know, himself that it's important for us to get away and be silent and be by ourselves. That's right. Just to be human. That's right. Um, so he says, leave your phone at home. He's the, he says the urgency, this, this is an exact quote, the urgency we feel to have a phone with us is exaggerated. Mm. Um, take long walks. He says it doesn't count if you take a long walk and you're listening to a podcast. doesn't count. Yep. Take an actual walk with no headphones in. He says, for the love of all things good, don't post a picture of that walk on Instagram. Just walk. Mm. And uh, then he also says to journal. Mm. Uh, well, he says write letters to yourself, but I, I took it. I took that to mean journaling. Yeah. Just spend some time writing and and like literally writing with your hand, because that engages a different part of your brain. Yeah, that's good. Typing. The the second one he he talks about is don't click like, and he just talks about how social media has changed the way we connect and communicate uh, with others. He has a quote on 139. More time you spend connecting on these services, the more isolated you're likely to become. So mm-hmm. it's it's social media. It's to, meant to build connections. But the more time you spend on it, the less time you're actually going to be in person with somebody and have a conversation or play a game or whatever, share, share a meal together. Social media actually takes people away from the real world of socializing, which I think is an interesting – it'll be interesting to see more and more studies come out of – kind of teenagers, preteens, you know, kind of people pushing into the late teenage years and early 20s at this point. And, I mean, really, we all grew up with it as as well. But just how, how much being attracted to, to social media actually is going to drive people away from being social. Um, Wait, so he, he, I thought this was interesting. He said that there's been studies that show that social media does indeed scratch a social itch, that there is a positive. So for someone who's experiencing extreme loneliness, there can be – it, it can be helpful to have connection with people through technology. But he says that the other side of that that studies have shown is that, as you said, the more the more time you spend socializing, kind of quote-unquote, online, it removes you from real-world social interactions, which at the end of the day is a, is a net loss. Mm. Um, and so he says, you know, we're not, we're not saying that those things aren't actually triggering parts in our brain for socialization. They are. But the, the irony is that it's actually pulling us away from those richer, more satisfying kinds of interactions, which are flesh and blood, face-to-face yep. conversations. And so in the long run, it actually makes us more lonely. Yes. And that was even part of our, I mean, I'm even thinking about 2020 and, you know, I'm sure we could have navigated everything better kind of when um, all, you know, everything kind of started in March of 2020, but kind of quickly felt the need to be back together because physical health is vital, but also spiritual, emotional, yep. relational health is an equal part of being human yep. um, and, and existing. He talks about connection versus conversation and, and connection kind of being the click like, hey, I'm, I'm kind of acknowledging you and acknowledging that you exist, but conversation is actually kind of being with a person and conversing and talking and struggling or lifting up joys or whatever it is. And so he talks about, he, his encouragement is to not click like because it's, it's like a pseudo relational connection. It's actually not anything. He says, "Don't um, comment, don't like." Don't comment, don't like. Which is, you know, obviously is a. It could be extreme. Like you don't have, you know, it's not a black and white issue there. But just trying to again make you aware, like the need to comment on everything, or the need to, oh, I if somebody didn't comment, do they not like it? Or oh, I only got twenty likes this time instead of twenty five, or you know, however many is an appropriate number of likes. People don't like me, or I'm not connect. You know, all of those things are false narratives that don't yeah. help. And I even feel it in myself. I've I've been pretty much off social media since 
maybe my sophomore or junior year of college. And I have just, in seasons when I've gone back, I feel it emotionally. I taste it in my heart and in my soul that I, I'm just, it, it does something to me that yeah. is that is not good. Um, and I don't really know how to explain it other than that. It draws me in. It wastes my time. I feel the need to be somebody I'm not or mm. to build some platform that is not really me. Um, so I don't really know, you know, what to do there. One of the benefits in, in thinking about that as well, he talks about consolidate texting. Um, so don't feel the perpetual need to have your phone ready to ding to then text somebody back is just make time to text. Like if that's at 9 a.m. and noon and 3 p.m. or, you know, end of the workday or whatever, um, instead of just perpetually almost having conversations over text that really aren't conversations. Yeah. Um, well, gosh, one of the one of the most helpful insights from this book is the dis- the distinction between connection and conversation. That texting and social media falls in the connection bucket, mm-hmm. and he says that we need to have conversation centric communication. In other words, all of our communication is intended to drive us to face to conversation. Conversation. So, text to coordinate a a lunch At meeting. Yeah. Yep. Um, for conversation. For better conversation. And just like pastorally, just. I plead with you, do not have conversations via text message. Don't have deep, don't, don't have paragraph long, deep conversations with your spouse or don't argue over text message. I have just seen couples do this and I just don't understand. It is deeply, deeply unhealthy and unhelpful to try and hash things out like this via text message. Mm. And one of the most helpful insights from the book is like, think about, email and text messaging and those kind of things as facilitating or, or getting you to places where you can have conversation. Do not have conversation on technology yeah. because it's just, it's not human and uh, it, it appeals to the worst instincts in us to hide um, and to, to kind of be mediated by a screen. Like think about those things as facilitating conversations, not as avenues. Yeah. For them. Let them you drive you to conversation. So I think, you know, it, one helpful thing that I've been trying to do is put my phone on Do Not Disturb, put my computer that dings with text messages on Do Not Disturb, and just come back to them when I'm done with the whatever you know the other things I was focusing on or spending time with or in conversations. So don't click like. The first one was uh, spend time alone. The last one was reclaim leisure. You know, if you're bored, you go to your phone. If you are engaged and intentional with what you do, the void is filled, and you no longer need distractions. That's with anything. If we're counseling guys on how to get over lust. It's not just kind of quit quit looking at things. We, we need you to fill your time yeah. with better things. Yeah. The same thing with, with digital you know, minimalism, kind of the idea of, of filling your time with things that are, are more useful. And we, I, I appreciate, he talks about kind of how much people benefit from working hard and even in their leisure working hard, which is not something I'm necessarily attracted to. It's kind of even a little bit of a paradigm shift. But we are made to work hard, Um he tells stories of people filling up leisure time with hard work, and I just thought about Genesis one and two. Mm. I mean, we're just made to to rule and care for the earth. And while I am not skilled in a lot of things necessarily with my hands, it doesn't mean I can't get better at it. Um, but a lot of times, I've been like, "What is the point of two hours of yard work, or you know, an hour of this, or you know, three hours of that?" That's just kind of feels mundane, um, or even a walk can feel mundane. It's kind of like, "What a you know." We just went and walked for 45 minutes. No entertainment, nothing nothing amazing about it. 
but it's just like it can be good to engage in kind of physical yep. leisure um, that's that kind of engages us in dis- different ways. So he talks about three kind of things to prior to to think about here: prioritize demanding activity over passive consumption. So mm. do something demanding. Two, use skills to produce valuable things in the physical world. That'll all be different for each of us. Um, it could be writing. It could be cooking. Cooking. It could be you know making a shed. It could be you know whatever you you like to do. And then seek activities that require real world social interactions. And I was that was a paradigm shift too. He he talks about kind of Planet Fitness versus CrossFit. Planet Fitness at you know ten dollars a month. Um, CrossFit at probably two hundred dollars a month. And why are people so attracted to to CrossFit? And when the gyms began, they would have probably been in gross, you know, places with kind of old clanky um, weights and just kind of like not really sure what's super attractive about this. Um, and he talks about F3 as well, which I know we have uh, Drew Plumley and, and maybe some others participate in our church that kind of pushes physical activity to real world connection. Like their workouts are with other people and in, they're talking and they're engaging and they're struggling together. And there's something that's that's really valuable to that. And then the last thing he just kind of encourages is just to schedule low-quality leisure. Um, low-quality being emails, social media, and that sort of thing. Schedule it in so that you know the time is coming to, you know, if you want to spend an hour on Facebook to look at whatever, great. But maybe do that on Saturday afternoon at, you know, 3 p.m. is going to be my leisure social media time instead of just kind of anytime I get bored or anytime I don't have something going on or I'm at the doctor's office. Let me just have my phone and scroll, maybe take a good book and read for 20 minutes or, you know, whatever. So schedule low quality leisure time in buckets so that then the rest of the time you're spending it kind of on conversations rather than connections. That's good. And then the the final piece is the, is joining the attention resistance. What is, what is that about? Yeah. So I think, his his big encouragement there is just to kind of take all of this seriously um, and be a part of, um, you know, doing these digital declutter, embracing digital minimalism. Um, and and here's where, where he really goes into the attention economy that um, just acknowledge that you've given Facebook zero dollars and yet they're the company that is worth almost the most in the entire world. Um so why is that? It's because we have given them our, our attention and our eyeballs. Mm. So the less kind of attention we we give to them, not that we're out to like make them worth nothing or anything, but it's just it is it is it is there to keep our attention and to draw us in. And so if we can kind of resist that need to constantly have our eyes on um, technology. Uh, then it can be a benefit. And it's, you know, oddly enough, we're doing this, doing this. I, I've got my computer open. you got your computer open. John's got his computer open. We've got phones. We've been using things. We're using these microphones. People are going to listen to us on their phones. We're going to promo this on Instagram. We're going to promo it, you know, on social media. We, you know, it's all kind of a paradox and, and kind of pushing against each other. But I think that's the point is there's good use of technology yeah. and there's bad use of technology. And bad use can be just kind of nominal use. Um, just kind of not acknowledging. So just be aware how you use technology is maybe the main takeaway. Yeah. Question it relentlessly. Yeah. Um, whatever things you assume you're doing well on, you're probably not doing as well as you think you are. And that's for all of us. Yeah, that's good. Uh, any thoughts or pushback uh, on the book? Like if you were to if you were to evaluate it critically, are there any things that you'd say differently or maybe press further in? Yeah, I... I 
again, he's he's doesn't seem to be a Christian, so he's not arguing from kind of our perspective um, on things. So I think that is just helpful to be aware of. I, I did I, kind of the things I honestly said earlier. The it's a two hundred fifty page book that could be one hundred twenty five pages. So kind of feel the freedom to read it, but also feel the freedom to read the part that's good and kind of pick up the the. You can pretty quickly kind of see how he's going to write, and so you can kind of skip skip or just read the first sentence of the paragraph that, of the parts that are less important. And then he does, you know, get on his high horse a little bit. Um, he's not he's not getting angry at you, but more in the like moral value sections um and it's just always interesting to think of you know where are people deriving their moral values and so just kind of be willing to to question where those moral values come from yeah i would say um so if i were to summarize maybe kind of the the heart of the book is that it's not anti-technology it's pro being human it's um it's pro relationships and being fruitful and multiplying and exercising dominion and those kind of things. And his reasoning can be pretty flimsy sometimes. So when uh, there's one section where he talks about the benefit of face-to-face conversation versus social media, and he's like, over thousands of years we evolved. Uh, Where's the quote? He says, you cannot expect an app dreamed up in a dorm room or among the ping-pong tables of Silicon Valley incubators to successfully replace the types of rich interactions to which we've painstakingly adapted over a millennia. Correct, yes. And it's like, I mean, that's pretty flimsy. Correct, yep. But but we can say as believers that we've been created in God's image. We've been created for relationships. That's right. And God gave us faces and gave you a face so that... And gave us the ability to recognize the nuances and the little flitter of eyes and the, the movement of the muscles in the mouth. Um, so, so anyway, you know, I, th- I think we have an even firmer basis for affirming the things that he does than he does. That's right. Um, so we're not anti-technology, but we're pro Imago Day. Yes. Uh, we're pro being image bearers and, and being humans. And I think that was, you know, I think you illustrated that perfectly of just, yeah, wh- wh- where is he getting kind of his morals and his arguments it's going to be from a very different place. Um, but honestly, it's kind of a common grace. Um, yeah. He, he sees the benefit of hard work. Yep. He sees the benefit of relationship. He sees the benefit of being human. And it's like, where do we get that from? And we know, we know the one who uh, has created us and given us those uh, desires. Yeah. It's great, man. Yeah, this was a great book, great conversation. Um, if you have any feedback or, or questions, or if you decide to take on the uh, thirty-day digital day digital declutter, let us know and let us know how it goes. Um, <clears throat> Emily and I have been talking about implementing some of this ourselves. Um, we appreciate you listening to this extra long episode of all of the above, but I, I thought this was was really interesting, and really helpful. Yeah, and I, I think it's good to go long sometimes. I'm sure people are listening on listening to us on two times speed anyway. So yeah. And I can't imagine, I mean, I, I would imagine that most of the time when we end our podcast, they're just desperate for us. Just have kept going. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, just more. Just so we try more. to give them a little bit more. Here. That's right. That's right. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.